iterating before you feel like you've done enough planning, it's uncomfortable. Arguing with people, having your ideas shot down, I can tell you from ample experience, it is uncomfortable. Openness is uncomfortable. You know what else is uncomfortable? Working in a stultifying bureaucracy where you don't know why you're doing exists. Uh, working in some kind of clock punchy job where you know nobody's listening to you and you're just kind of going through the motions for a paycheck. I think that's not, that's not just uncomfortable. I think that's excruciating and, I, and people don't want to live their, live their professional lives that way. So it's not that the geek way is effortless and fun for everybody at all times. Pointed conversations can be difficult. I had Chris Argyris when I was collaborating very, very kindly call me out for not holding up my end. I, I did not love that conversation, but I learned a lot from it. And it's better than this, this kind of, you know, stultifying, sclerotic, bureaucratic thing that we associate with big, or, with big legacy organizations. Hey, everybody, what's up? That was Andrew McAfee. He is a principal research scientist at the MIT Sloan School of Management. He's the co-founder and co-director of MIT's Initiative on the Digital Economy and the inaugural visiting fellow at the Technology and Society Organization at Google. To say that he is very schooled in organizational technology, in what makes us creators, entrepreneurs, tick, how to build great organizations. To say that he's an expert, there would be a radical understatement. He is also a New York Times bestselling author of a couple of previous books. Today, we talk about an exciting new work that he's putting out in the world called The Geek Way. Today's conversation is a handbook for disruption. It's incredibly valuable. I'm very excited to share Andy's work with you today, our conversation about how we ought to think about building things, people, organizations, and even our own lives. So I'm gonna get out of the way, yours truly and Andy kicking off the show. Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being a guest here. Chase, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, I have been aware of your career for a bit now. You have created, uh, in addition to you know the mountains of work, you've created a couple of books that are consumer facing that I have enjoyed, and specifically, you've got a new one out today that we're going to talk about. Uh, but before we do, and as like a little introductory remark for the listeners and watchers of our show today, could you do a little bit to to orient us around uh, you know what you find important in the world, what you like to write on, and you know, likely why you're on the show today? Give us a little context. So the short answer is I don't know why I'm on the show today, but we're going to figure <laughs> that out together. The, the longer answer is the, the book is called The Geek Way. And I love that word. And my literary agent pointed out that nobody had claimed that word in the same way that, you know, Angela Duckworth took grit and make, yeah. made it her word, made a whole like amazing thing out of it. Clay Christensen took disruption and made a whole really important thing out of it. My literary agent, Raphael Segelin, said we had written a, a couple of paragraphs about geeky leadership. And he said, wait, that, that's a thing. That's an idea. Go run with that. And I, it was excellent advice and I took it. And I love hanging out with geeks. And for me, a geek is an obsessive maverick. It's somebody who can't let go of a hard problem. They just have to wrestle it. They have to try to solve it. And they'll embrace really unconventional solutions. And I, I flatter myself by calling myself a geek. The flavor of geek that I am is trying to figure out where all this technology is taking us. You know, Chase, we live in science fiction times. I mean that just about <laughs> literally. And I'm trying to figure out the implications of that for fill in the blank. And the blank could be the labor force or the blank could be the environment. Or in this case, the blank is the organization and how we should conduct ourselves differently. That That's kind of just where I've uh, landed with my career. And I feel incredibly lucky because I get to think for a living. And I love hanging out with the alpha geeks of, of different stripes. And I have that privilege in my life. Well, let's uh, look a little bit backwards now. Let's go back in time, the time machine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think there are a lot of people in the audience who are listening right now or watching that identify with that geekdom. And there's a you know, there's a, a curiosity, a desire to grab something and run with it. There's um, yeah. a desire to iterate quickly, a desire for collaboration and yep. openness. Um, 
one of the things that I'm most curious about is when did you start this identification with geekdom? Uh, and I'm asking in order to sort of make a little bit of a connection between you and the readers and also help people who might not identify with the phrase understand that there's probably a little geek in them as well. I, I categorically agree. I bet all of your listeners are obsessed with what they do professionally, but my guess is they also have a thing in their lives that they just spend lots of cycles on, right? Whether or not it's their paycheck, they have a thing that they spend lots of cycles on and where they don't mind being weird in the eyes of the mainstream. My guess is that every, just about every one of your listeners is a geek. And I am super grateful to my parents because I think I got my introduction to geekdom really, really early in life. I talk in the book, I talk in the geek way about the person who I think is the patron saint of geeks. And it's not Elon, uh, although he's an amazing geek. It's not Nikolai Tesla. It's not Richard Feynman. For me, the patron saint of geeks is Maria Montessori, who was this educational innovator more than 100 years ago in Italy. And there are still Montessori schools all around the world today. And when I was, I, I think, not any older than three, my parents enrolled me in a Montessori school. And it was this environment that did away with all the trappings and all of the equipment of industrial era education, you know, grids of desks and all that. And Maria said, no, that, that's, that's not how kids learn. The way young children learn, she said, they are inherently deeply, deeply curious people. And the way they learn is by just getting to explore environments that are set up to teach them things that, that we want to teach them. And so I just remember from the earliest years of my schooling, the notion that I had and that school encouraged as opposed to discouraged, was the notion that the world is a really, really interesting place. And my job, even as a little bitty kid, my job is to go poke it and learn about it and ask questions about it and try to get smarter about it. You probably know there's a thing called the Montessori Mafia in tech circles. It turns out that both Larry and Sergey were Montessori kids. Jeff Bezos was a Montessori kid. And some researchers looked at this and they found a disproportionate percentage of builders, of creators, of entrepreneurs had this kind of very geeky, non-traditional early childhood education. And I think that puts you on a trajectory where even if you have to go into standard schooling later, and I did later in my life, it doesn't drive all the geekiness out of you, thank heaven. <laughs> well, I was uh, struck by, in the foreword for the book, who uh, it was written by Reed Hoffman, who's a yeah. friend. Uh, he's, he's been a guest on the show before. He's an investor in my last company. Uh, and from, and from he's Braylock. a mensch, right? And he's brilliant oh. and he's a good guy. <laughs> yeah, super good. And he's uh, one of the billionaires that are uh, really, really thoughtful. Um, he's a very it's kind and thoughtful person. Yes. thoughtful, yeah, right. Yeah. And many of you also probably remember him as the founder of LinkedIn, among other things. Uh, and he, it struck me in his foreword, he, he describes you as someone who is one of these alpha geeks. And he talks about this specific angle on it of the business variety. Yeah. Now, I'm wondering if you can sort of clarify that because, again, there's this – I'm thinking about, you know, the, the lens through which our listeners are, you know, paying attention to this. And most of the geeks, this idea of tinkering, of something that consumes yeah. you, of a willingness and an openness. We've already talked about some of these characteristics. And the ability to be a geek is one thing. And the ability to be a geek and make – useful, valuable things in the world to create businesses and to, to be able to make a living off it is another thing. And right. you seem to have, uh, well, Reed talks about you, you know, being of this variety and you can bring this into the organizations and the, the right. things that you want to build to build companies. And so for those who are listening, whether you're a solopreneur or, you know, a small business, or maybe you're working as a, as an entrepreneur in, in a big company, like what's yep. this sort of business angle that our folks who are listening should know about. Like you know, Chase, when you write a book, you go hit up a lot of your friends, especially your fanciest and, and highest visibility <laughs> friends, to write you an endorsement, to write you a blurb, right? Yes. You, you just, you hit people up. You put the ask on them. And I got very lucky because I, I got some fantastic blurbs. But Reed wrote back and he said, sure, uh, do you want me to write a foreword? 
And I said, well, A, yes, you know, duh, B, thank you so much. It's just an example of what we were talking about. He's a very thoughtful, extremely kind person. He's also stratospherically busy, but he's a thoughtful, kind person. So he offered to write a foreword. And the one that he wrote is not very long. It's a couple of pages long, but he, he described the book and what I'm trying to do much better than I could, much better. And he nailed what's at the heart of the book, which is identifying and trying to unpack the contributions of a very specific group of people, the geeks who got obsessed with the problem of running this thing called a company. Because the company is a technology. I'm not trying to be cute with words. A technology is a thing that we human beings invent to help us accomplish our goals. The The company is a technology. And I became aware and then convinced that one of the big stories of the 21st century and the one that we are not paying enough attention to is this um, this coalescing of a bunch of geeks who got obsessed with the hard problem of how do I run a company and how do I grow it? And fine. Every entrepreneur wants to do those things. I The business geeks that I got obsessed about, I think they were asking a little bit more specific question, which is how do I run a company? How do I grow it? And how do I avoid all of the chronic dysfunctions that kept cropping up over the course of the industrial era? Why is it that the biggest barrier to innovation is within the company itself? There's a survey that I include in the book where they asked a bunch of innovation managers, what are the biggest problems here? And the the top two answers by far, they weren't about budget. They weren't about intellectual property. They were about politics and bureaucracy and turf wars. Just this kind of disheartening stuff that comes up in companies and seemed to be kind of inevitable as companies grew, as they scaled up and as they aged, they just got jammed up. And the business geeks that I got obsessed with looked at that and they said, hold on, It, it like, it does, maybe it doesn't have to be that way. Maybe we can do something different. Maybe we can accomplish all the goals of an organization. And you know, let's be super honest, those goals improve, include revenue growth, profitability, maximizing the value of the organization, making your investors happy. Heck yeah. They said, maybe we can get better at those things. And at the same time, not make them kind of low level, soul crushing lives of quiet desperation places to work. <laughs> and the reason I wrote the geek way is because I'm not saying they've they've nailed that problem. It's a really hard problem. They have made significant progress on it. They have made a lot of progress on it. And so when you go look around these companies, and I'm talking about companies that we've all heard of. I'm talking about Netflix. It's just a great example of a geek company where, in fact, Reed Hastings had been previously a CEO. And by his own estimation, he was a mediocre one. And he led a company into low growth, low innovation, high bureaucracy, middle age. Uh, when he, when the acquisition of his company was announced, the stock price of the acquirer dropped by a lot. This was an under, very successful guy by any measure, but underwhelming in his ability to accomplish that geeky mission of building a vibrant company. And when he started Netflix... One of his things was, what do I need to do better and different to avoid all that gumming up, that jamming up, this kind of this kind of low level, you know, it's kind of like I got a flu all the time, just low level misery that can come from working in a company. How do we get out of that business? And what what the reason I decided to write the book is I became convinced that Hastings and a bunch of his peers. Largely concentrated on the West Coast, largely concentrated in the tech sector, but not exclusively, had made real, real progress on that problem of how do I build a company that does not do those things? Yeah. You know, this is one of the reasons when I saw your recent book here and I saw, you know, I get a little preview from a lot of publishers because we Mm -hmm. had the benefit of having, you know, a 13 or 14 year run on the show now. And one of the things that I was most enamored with was specifically this idea that we're focused on here. This like, how do you make a thing that, you know, runs well is supports the joy for the rationale that you got into it in the first place. Like I I have this phrase that I have stapled all over my life. Remember why you started because things get hard. And when they do, you need to remember why you started. You started to, because you wanted to make an impact. You wanted to be able to provide for your family in a way that was joyful as opposed to, um, you know, punching the ticket as you see in the cartoons where the, you know, the characters go to work and they go do their thing and then they have a life outside of that. So in, 
and specifically, I'm I'm interested in how this is a, how and why this is applicable to both people who are building something new or small and look at that as a trap that they are trying to avoid. Yeah. And for people who are in those companies, can see it, touch it, feel it firsthand, and yeah. want to drive their business unit or their own experience in that company away from those sort of what I would just call toxic ideals. So how, you know, your 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 work bridges this interesting gap. You lean more heavily in the book into, into building, you know, larger companies. Yeah. But I, I think it's actually very interesting to think about what, if you are building something new, what to not do, how to look at the thing, that, what is the trap that we're following. And so what are some of the characteristics of these traps mm -hmm. and for people who are new to this stuff, like what is it that they're actually watching out for? You, you mentioned very generally like bureaucracy and yeah. uh, you had a couple other adjectives, uh, nouns. What, what are, what are we steering clear of? What's the, what's the toxicity that, that gobbles us up? This is such a critical question because, like you know, organizations are, I'm going to use kind of the, the economist term, they're path dependent. Their early history matters. The actions of their founders matter a great deal. Uh, Drew Houston, who's an MIT alum, I work at MIT, came to campus a few years ago, and I got to interview him on stage. You know, obviously, this overflow room of prospective entrepreneurs. So I said to him, great, you've got a room of wannabe entrepreneurs out there. Give them some advice. And I was expecting him to talk about how to build a viral product, which Dropbox had done unbelievably well, or how to deal with venture capitalists or a board or something like that. And his answer was completely different. He said, when I was starting Dropbox, I booked time with a lot of the geeks that I uh, respected the most, primarily in the Valley. And I w just went around and had coffee with them. And he said, they all told me the same thing. He said, they all told me to start working on the culture very early and never, ever let go of that. Never lose sight of that as you're scaling up the company. So I think your question is exactly right. Even for younger or smaller organizations, there's a set of things that, that are, I think are critical to do right from the jump so that you start on a good trajectory as opposed to a bad trajectory. Let, let me give you a couple of them. One of them is to realize that you are an incredibly good evaluator of ideas as long as they're not your own ideas. This is a really, it's deeply weird, but once you, I think you look at it the right way, it starts to make a ton of sense. The, I think maybe the single most common human cognitive bias and the easiest co cognitive bias to elicit is overconfidence. We human beings are chronically, chronically overconfident. I tell a story in the book about how Danny Kahneman, who's the first non-economist to win the Nobel Prize in economics for studying our cognitive biases fell into the deep trap of overconfidence when he was trying to write a book. Chase, I have to confess, I fell into the trap of overconfidence when I was writing The Geek Way. I got, the, I got my submission date for the manuscript wrong. I was overconfident in it. We human beings are chronically overconfident for reasons that I hope we, we get to talk about. But there's a very clear implication from that, which is your brain is amazing and it generates all kinds of ideas for you. And that's great. Don't believe them. Your brain's <laughs> job is not to be a rational seeker of the truth or present reality to you. Your brain, a big part of your brain's job is to whisper in your own ear how awesome you are so that you can then be overconfident to the world. Overconfidence is really, really valuable or confident, appearing confident is very, very valuable. So there's a very clear implication, uh, implication from that. You are overconfident. I think training yourself not to be overconfident is extraordinarily difficult. Kahneman couldn't do it. I certainly can't do it. I think it's like training yourself not to like calorie rich foods. It's just really, really hard, but there's an alternative. <laughs> there's an alternative that works like crazy, which is, Submit your ideas to the group, to group level scrutiny, get feedback. The, the research on this is, act, is actually crazy. We are um, really good, bizarrely good at evaluating the ideas of others. We're actually pretty rational at it. We're really kind of a great evaluator of others', others ideas, even though we're terrible at ours. And what I think has happened is that evolution has said we human beings were an inherently groupy species. We just, we, we have to live in groups. We can't survive on our own. Great. So evolution did this very clever trick where it outsourced evaluating ideas up to the group level 
and left coming up with ideas down at the individual level. As long as you get that division of labor right, your chances go way, way up. So great, have all the ideas you want, but don't stop there. Let your peers, let your colleagues, let other people bang on them and tr don't take it personally. Be open to the idea that you're wrong. In addition to being overconfident, we human beings are uh, also naturally defensive. We don't want to admit defeat. That's a really bad strategy in a lot of ways. We naturally want the status quo to persist and the group level evaluation of ideas. And that's just another way of saying science. Science is, yes, it's about evidence gathering. More fundamentally, science is about subjecting your ideas to group level scrutiny and all of the, all of the pain and kind of uh, you know, unpleasant feelings that come along with that. So one thing that everybody should keep in mind, whether you're a solopreneur or just starting out or you've got a small team, man, that team is where the, where the ideas should get stress tested. It's not your individual brilliance that's going to do that for you. Yeah. And right now I can imagine there's someone who's, you know, uh, walking on the walking path or sitting on the, the park bench there listening to our show. And they're saying like, wait a minute, like I thought ideas go to committee to die. And that's yeah. not what we're talking. It's not what we're talking about. So this is, I was particularly again struck when I was reading this part of the book and it says the way that I interpreted it and the way that I, I have written about uh, a thing that I call community, which is if you do not have a community, especially as a creator or an entrepreneur, a group of people to bang these ideas off Amen. of, it's yeah. very difficult to improve them because our because of our internal individual biases, as you as you wisely point out. But if you think of this as science and a thing you've got to submit your ideas formally, I think it gets it, it starts to feel like the bureaucracy you're trying to avoid. But I, I want to. It seems to me, Andy, that you're saying that if you have a community of like-minded people who share a vision, a direction, who are interested in a lot of the same things that you are, that this group, cultivating this group and being able to talk openly about these ideas yeah. and, and stress test them and throw rocks at them, if you will, that is one of the most effective ways for getting your ideas to cut through the, the clutter. Is that, yeah. is that a fair assessment? Like it's, my, it's really fair. my application and of community? Okay. Yeah. And you bring up that community is not committee, which I think is a really important distinction. And I've spent most of my career in academia. Academia is full of committees. There are all kinds <laughs> of committees going on, except when it comes to your research. Yeah. You, you don't have an oversight board. You don't have to run it up the flagpole and make, you, you just, you go do your work and you do it, you know, with your teams and your graduate students and you, your collaborators, but you have great autonomy to define and execute your research agenda, which I think is as it should be. And one of the other things geek companies do is they actually deliver on this notion of autonomy. The, the evidence is pretty clear about that, but and the reason science works, the reason academia, and we can make fun of academia all day long, the thing about it that works is that you don't just get to publish your ideas. And it has to go through this process called peer review first. And that's the community weighing in on your ideas and when it works well, trying to make them better. Now, we've seen plenty of examples of how peer review in science can fall apart or not accomplish its goals. There's no, uh, it, it, there's no guarantee of a good outcome here. But wow, submitting your ideas to that community and getting helpful feedback from them, especially if it's done in an honest spirit of let's make this work better, as opposed to, you know, Andy thinks he, this is his chance to, to tank uh, Chase's career. As long as you do it in the right spirit, that is the way to actually stress test ideas and improve their quality. Another one of our human superpowers and another thing that I didn't understand until I started re researching this book that, again, applies to everybody. I hope all the listeners for your show, no matter where they are, is to realize that I think our deepest human superpower, in, in addition to cooperation, I think the deepest human superpower is learning. We are astonishing learning machines in a way that no other species on the planet is. I have this great quote in the book from Steve Stuart Williams, who's a great, who's a psychologist. He wrote a book called The Ape That Understood the Universe. And he talks about what makes us humans so unique on the planet. And he has this phrase that I love. He said, 10,000 years ago, the pinnacle of chimpanzee culture was sticking a twig into a termite mound to get the termites out. Today, the pinnacle of chimpanzee culture is sticking a twig into a termite mound to get the termites out. They just, they don't evolve their cultures as quickly as we do. They don't learn like we do. Our, our superpower is learning and our learning is not 
primarily in a classroom. It's not primarily from a textbook. We have this weird ability to look around us at who's doing the thing that we want to learn, who's good at it, and we create kind of a weighted average of everything that we've seen, and we get better via that internal, largely subconscious process of observing and creating the weighting average and then go trying things out there in the world. So for me, that implies that when you want to get better at something, make it more visible to everybody involved. Break it up into chunks. Show work every week or every two weeks. And make sure that you are exposing as many different models, as many different people that you can learn from as possible. That's the way to accelerate this learning process. I tell a story in the book uh, that unfortunately does not make me look good, but it has the advantage of being true. There's a course at MIT called How to Make Almost Anything. And the course lives up to its name. It's one semester. And from a standing start, you kind of learn how to use a milling machine and a 3D printer and to do embedded object programming and a laser cutter. And you, the, the amount of ground you cover is crazy. And I tried to take the course because I was fascinated by it a couple of years ago. And I flat couldn't keep up. I have a list of excuses. I'm not going to bore you with them. I think I'm too old. I think I just couldn't keep up. But the students in the class do, and they go in some cases from not very much experience in a semester to this crazy body of knowledge and abilities. And the genius of the course, which was designed by my MIT colleague, Neil Gershenfeld, is to, is to tap into that human superpower of learning by making everybody do something every week and show their work to everybody else. And what that means is you have this amazing body of models and examples to draw from. It accelerates your learning like crazy. There are no exams, there are no problem sets, there's none of that, just go make stuff in this very iterative fashion. That's something anybody can put into practice. Yeah, and that specifically, again, speaks to our listeners and watchers here who identify as creators and entrepreneurs. And this idea that we, you know, that that you get value from creating in your parents' basement, it's it's not to say that there isn't inherent value in your creativity and that the, the act of creating can satisfy the soul enough. However, if you know, if the goal to, you know, I, I think about creativity is putting, you know, two things together that used to not go together with the goal of making something new and interesting and ideally useful. And, you know, we talk about utility, whether this is a painting and the utility in a painting can be to create joy or a particular set of emotions that you were, you were experiencing or in, you know, creating a company, this idea of doing work repeatedly in a, in a, if you go to art school, for example, there's crit, you show up yeah. with your work, they tape it to the wall and you get to hear others talk about your work as objectively as possible with the goal of making it better. So whether you're in a company and <clears throat> seeking to have the best ideas rise to the top or you're a creator and you know the goal is to get your ideas refined and better, we, we again see this, this um, the, the, I would say just community to me is the, is the right word here. You have to get this, the, the value of community, the value of iteration and actually like your MIT course, making a lot of stuff. There's that apocryphal story where there's the pottery teacher who grades one half the class on one project. You have to make this project uh. extra beautiful. And the other one who has, you're going to get graded on the amount of stuff that you make. And I love it. not only does the, does the side of the class that makes the most stuff, do they, they make a lot of stuff, but they also, it turns out, make the best stuff because of this the, the rapid prototyping, learning, and then reapplying what they learned back into the next thing. Right. So I'm a huge, huge learning fan. And uh, having built a, a company in the learning space, the things that you talked about on that in that bit were not lost on me at all. And I have a question. Yep. When you zoom out, what is it about geek culture? What are these sort of the attributes or the conditions? that make geek culture a great place to learn? What are sort of the, the attributes yeah. that if someone's listening, like, cool, I want more of this in my life. Yeah. What are some of the frame, what's a framework that I can put that really facilitates learning? Because if learning is our superpower, we're going to learn and put more things back into the system as we iterate is another great word. Yeah. What are the conditions for that that you've seen in your research that, that, that um, make it the most successful place and way to learn. 
And I devote the bulk of the book to exactly this question. What is it that you need to do to tap into all this amazing stuff that you and I are talking about? And my answer comes in the form of norms. And a, a norm has a, for me, has a fairly specific definition. It is a thing that the people around you expect you to do. Uh, it's, it's community policing. And if you don't do it, the community is going to tell you about it. So if I walked out the door without pants on one day, it's not, maybe it's not technically illegal, but I would hear about it relatively quickly from some people. We have a norm that you wear pants of some kind. That's a silly example, but I believe that what the geeks have done is they've identified and worked very hard on a small set of norms that enable the kind of cultures that you and I are describing, that enable these very iterative, fast-moving, free-flowing, argumentative, egalitarian cultures. How do you do that? So the four norms that I believe are at the heart of the geek way, and I've got a chapter on each of them in the book, are first of all science, which is exactly what you and I were talking about a little while back. Come up with ideas on your own, uh, generate evidence and evaluate them as a group and argue about them. That's the first one. The second one is ownership. Don't jam everything up in a committee. Don't make everything go through tons of process. Devolve authority down to a place that makes you pretty uncomfortable and use a, an alignment process to make sure that everybody's working toward the goals of the organization and then just get out of the way and let them do their thing. The third one is speed, which is a synonym for iteration. We were just talking about that. Do lots of generations, do lots of cycles. That's how not to just make more pottery, but to make better pottery by the end. And then the follow, the last one is openness, which is another way of saying not defensiveness. A pretty close synonym for openness is psychological safety, which my colleague Amy Edmondson is so brilliant at talking about. Yeah, Build we've had Amy on the show. You, She's yeah, great. She's great. I taught with her at Harvard forever. Amy's work is fantastic. And she keeps on in, uh, repeating something fundamental, which is that psychological safety is not a, a characteristic that an individual has. It's a characteristic that a group has. It is a norm. If uh, in, the, in the geek companies that I respect, if you're an abusive boss, if you're domineering, if you shout somebody down because I don't care what evidence you have, my gut tells me this thing over here, you're not going to fit in. You're going to hear about it. There's a norm of that kind of psychological safety of openness here. So I spend a lot of time talking in more detail about where, where, why these norms are so important, how they're practiced at geek companies. But for me, if you want to build this kind of company, and again, I, I talk a lot about fairly large techie companies. I don't care if you're running a tiny shop, if you've got a loose group of collaborators, these four norms, I'm pretty convinced will still serve you well. It's science, ownership, speed, and openness. Love it. Let's talk a little bit more about this openness point. So yeah. the, the openness, you know, to go back to Amy's, Amy Edmondson's work talking about sort of the safety, the, yeah. the willingness and an, an ability to operate in a way where you, you're not fearing for the next move that you make. Talk more about that and this culture of openness, because you know one of the things when, as I look at the at creative industries historically, and why I think we're on a on the cusp of just this massive uh, catapult of growth and expression, is yeah. most of that work was thought to have been done in private behind closed doors. There wasn't yeah. a lot of transparency and availability. Yeah. You, you know, the, the these ideas of uh, I remember not all that long ago where the concept of a behind the scenes video, it, it didn't exist on the internet. And now that in a way is this a, a vehicle, a vector for those of us who are trying to learn something new to watch people who are the best in the world, Completely. almost do it, do it in real time. And, yep. and so this is, you know, a, a fundamental attribute to what I think the creators and entrepreneurs that are listening here should should really value this openness where we were once taught to protect our ideas that these are our secrets that yeah. you know if we let them out we're going to be at a disadvantage whereas you know a culture of openness where you are soliciting the feedback yeah. I mean you do cultivate the muscle of sharing and not worrying as much about rejection or what feedback yeah. comes back so talk yeah. to us about this openness and in really the broadest sense that you can to be as inclusive of all sorts of thinking on this. 
And you used a great phrase that, like you said, characterized the the philosophy of innovation or the philosophy of leadership for a lot of people. It was protect your ideas. In other words, why would you film a behind the scenes video? That's literally the last thing that you would do. We've already talked a little bit about one reason why you should film that video, why you should get the information out there, because it will help everybody learn faster. There's another reason. I think it's at the same level of importance uh, is that if you don't protect your ideas, you will be showing other people not to protect their ideas, and you will become a less defensive organization. Let me make that concrete. You know the company HubSpot, a marketing software company based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So the founder, co-founder, and initial CEO is Brian Halligan. He's a good friend of mine. And he came to talk to me years and years back about these nerdy things called blogs and Wikipedia. And we realized we were geeks and we've been friends ever since. But early in the company's history, he said, hey, I want to start doing some executive education. I want to get, I want to offer some programs for the HubSpotters. Will you help me with that? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Now, in my experience, I'd been teaching at business schools for a while by that point. There's a ton of executive education that happens at business schools. And the way it happens is that a senior manager comes in and she wants to prepare her team for the internet economy. And we say, yeah, we'll help you with that. And then she and us get in this, she and we get in the same room and we hammer out a curriculum and then we go do that to the team. And that's just kind of how it works. Halligan had a different approach. He and I brainstormed for a while. And then he said, okay, great. Come on to the office. We're going we're gonna to run this by the HubSpotters. And I thought, oh, that, that whole run it by thing is kind of interesting. So we went in. He had a team of about 20 people around a conference table. And I talked about the curriculum. And Halligan talked about what his goals were. And then he said, what do you, got, what do you all think? And he sat down. And I was kind of waiting for the great idea boss conversation to happen. And that was what I was used to. And instead, this child spoke up and I'm pretty sure he wasn't shaving yet. He just looked like he had come from prom or something. He had to be a new hire and he stood up. He didn't wait for an appropriate amount of time or anything. He stood up and the first words out of his mouth were something like, yeah, there are a couple things I don't like. And then he went on from there and I'm sitting over on the side of the room and I'm like, Oh man, I am watching somebody commit a career limiting move, right? This is, this is not how you address your CEO, your second week at work. I, I don't know what this, this kid is thinking. And then I realized that I was the only person in the room who found that surprising at all. I looked around and you can see what, you know, when the tension in the room is rising, there was absolutely none of that. And Halligan looked at this kid and he said, yeah, that's a good idea. I hadn't thought of that. And there was no challenge in his voice. There was none of that going on. And he and I went back to his office to debrief. And I said, wow, that, was, that, that, that moment was really interesting. He said, what moment are you talking about? I said, where that kid contradicted you and you, you took it really well. And he kind of looked at me and he said, what kind of company do you think I'm trying to build here? Do, do, do I want to be the boss who's never contradicted? No, I don't want to protect my ideas. I want the company to have good ideas. There's a, there's a right way to go about that. And it's not about protecting and being defensive and trying to maintain the status quo. It's about building a company where that kid will feel comfortable speaking up in the way he did. Now, it wasn't disrespectful or anything, but it was candid and it was awesome. Let's, okay. I find that to be both fascinating and... Um, on its way toward being a norm. I think the, the millennial generation is yeah, very clear I think that's about, true. Their, yeah, about their, their preferences. And Gen Z, yeah, is, yeah. You know, they're, they're, by our standards, they're kind of mouthy, right? They will tell for you what sure, they think. For sure, for sure. And it has brought a lot of interesting stuff to light. Yep. The part, the part that I think deserves a little more uh, excavating on that idea is, is what sort of, um, is there a throttle that one ought to have on this notion and, you know, to be quick to, uh, contradict someone to be like, where is the thoughtfulness line? Where is the, the consideration line? Where is the, what's, where, you know, there's some nuance in here that I don't want to completely ignore. Yeah. And I don't want to, to sort of, uh, suggest that conflict for conflict's sake or you know, is actually the, the protocol that you're recommending here? 
help I, us understand I'm, this. It's I'm nuanced. absolutely not rec- recommending conflict as the way to get everything done. If that were the case, you know, rooms full of investment bankers screaming at each other would would, would be the model <laughs> that we should all follow. And I, I actually don't think that's the case. Let me subject a, a couple different categories of throttle. I, I, I love your term. Let me suggest a couple different categories of throttle on this kind of very open interaction. Number one, and this gets right back to the norm of science. Science is a uh, ground rule for how you're going to settle arguments. It's, it's a ground rule. And the ground rule is evidence. The ground rule is not charisma or seniority or intuitive appeal or a slick PowerPoint deck or I really feel strongly about this. Uh-uh-uh-uh. For everything that can be settled by evidence, the ground rule of science is, okay, you believe A and I believe B. What evidence is going to tell whether A is correct or B is correct? Let's go run that test. Let's go get that evidence. So that that alone gets you out of a lot of the business of just shooting off your mouth and expecting everybody to listen to you. But that, that doesn't always work. And Halligan wasn't asking for evidence. He was asking for people's opinions. The second throttle that I would suggest is um, argumentation can segue into abuse. Mm-hmm. And argumentation can segue into a battle for dominance. Because again, we as a, as a species, we are deeply, deeply wired for status. There's all this amazing research that I talk about in the book that says that we human beings probably want status more than we want uh, money, for example, more than we want a higher income, more than we want resources, we want status. So that argumentation can turn into just jockeying for position on some kind of ladder here. And the way to avoid that, I believe, is to make sure that that you're hosting disagreements or you're hosting conversations that are in line with the goals of the organization. So let me make that concrete, and especially for some of the younger generations in the workforce who are passionate about, about a bunch of different things. You're running a company. Maybe it's not a climate tech company. And in that case, you might not want people to spend six hours of every day arguing about cooking the planet or arguing about global warming. You might consider that an unproductive use of their time. I'm not saying you're right or wrong, but that conversation might not be in line with the goals of the organization, in which case you need to find ways to say, gang, I understand you feel strongly about that. There are many, many waking hours where you are not at your job. Our job is to, I don't know, make and sell software, for example. We're not a climate-based company. And I, we're, we're not going to have the 50% time devoted to climate kinds of conversations. There's a phrase that was associated with Silicon Valley companies for a long time that said, bring your whole self to work. That's great up to the time when people are devoting too much of their bandwidth and too much of their quest for status to things that are not in line with the goals of the company. So the last yeah. throttle I would suggest is just be mindful about what you want your people to be talking and arguing and striving toward. Yeah. Excellent. And that's helpful. I think, you know, the way that I would think about it is if you extrapolate the the value of human attention, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, the things that you, that in fact, that's largely all we have in this world, right, is our attention. And so what you direct your, or, or what you train yourself to direct your attention towards, yeah. that really matters a lot. And, you know, I guess coherently or, or analogously, think about that same thing in, the, the world of building a company, again, whether this is a small you know, two-person shop or you're trying to build a, a large global brand, learning to train your attention on the things that are actually going to help you be successful and understanding yeah. the difference between between what will and won't, that is the job in part of a leader, right? This is how we align. It's a huge align. part of the job. Yeah. 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 What, do you, what, do you, what do you teach your, your people to think about? And Mark Benioff tells a really interesting story in his book. What's, is it Behind the Cloud? I forget the exact title. But he tells a story that I hadn't heard before, that he was a fairly senior manager at Oracle before he founded Salesforce. And he said, I realized that I didn't know what to tell my team, my part of the organization, about what they should do so they were in line with the goals of Oracle as a whole. I, I didn't know what the overall goals of Oracle were, and I couldn't really translate them down into the day-to-day for the people that were that were on my team. 
And he said, when I went to go talk to the higher ups at the company, they're like, Mark, don't worry about it. Just, just go do your job. And Benioff continued to think that was really, really wrong headed. And so as he was uh, co-founding Salesforce, he lore has it that he grabbed an, uh, an envelope and he scribbled on the back of it, vision, values, methods, uh, obstacles, and measures. I think I've got those five things right. And he called wow. it the V2 mom. And he said, I'm going to write in those five things for the company as a whole. What we're then going to do is cascade that down throughout the organization. So everybody in the company knows what the CEO is trying to accomplish, let's say, for the next year. Then the job is, and this cascades down, how does what you're doing support the higher up thing that supports the higher up thing that supports the overall goals of the organization. John Doerr wrote a great book called Measure What Matters. It's an OKR process, an objective and key results kind of process. Sure. Benioff put it in place at Salesforce and my friends who work at Salesforce say, oh yeah, like the V2 mom is deadly serious. We spend time on it. We iterate on it with our managers. Uh, I have one of my friends who said, whenever I would have a meeting with somebody, the first thing I would do was look up their V2 mom, which is on the internet for everybody to see. Then I would know what their priorities were. I would know where they were coming from and they would know the same thing for me. And that's not to say Salesforce magically became a zero politics or zero backroom conversation company. Of course it didn't, but it did go a long way to what we were talking about to make sure that your people know what they're supposed to be doing, why they're supposed to be doing it. And there are surveys about most industrial era companies and something between 50 and 90% of people report that they don't know why they're doing what they're doing. Man, that, that is an avoidable mistake. That is an avoidable mistake. And people like Salesforce and Door are showing us how to get out of that trap. Yes. I, I love this. As a former CEO of a venture-backed company, it was very important when we would have the sort of the year strategic you know, objective. This is where we're going. This is what we're doing. I would literally say every person in the room, you need to understand how what you do every day when you show up here, whether that's in person or digitally, how what you do matters to these three things. And if you have any questions about it, if you think the thing that you're spending your time on does not ladder up directly to one of these things, raise your hand now, publicly open or go back and with your manager, like have a conversation because we all are, we need to be, you know, sort of pulling in the same direction. And there's a military equivalent that I, I took my, um, fascination with that from, and that's, I think they call it, I think it's called the commander's objective, which is yeah. that, you know, your team is your, your goal is to go, you know, take this, uh, this Harbor, you know, you're the seal team six, you got to go and yeah, take this, take harbor. the Harbor. It's like, right. okay, great. So let's just assume you get cut off. Your communication right. gets cut off. Once you take the harbor, do you just sit there? No, you need to understand that the goal is once you take the harbor, we take the harbor because we need the hill. Once we take the hill, then we go to the capital or whatever. The Again, this military analogy is probably getting a little long in the tooth. But the point is, if you get cut off, you need to continue to be able to understand the role that you are playing, how it ladders up to the biggest objectives that the company right or the on. vision, the vision right of, of the people that you show up to work with every day. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And it's not that it's rocket science, right? This is not neurosurgery. It's not that right. hard to do, but I'm sure you learn this in uh, running your companies. It is easy to pay not enough attention to that. And then the, the default becomes people doing their own thing or not tightly aligned. Or, and then you wind up in this weird situation where people are working really hard, but they can't tell you why. It's just an yes. avoidable mistake. You just need to be mindful and have this norm about ownership, which is about devolving authority, yes, but it's also about ensuring alignment. Um, there's this amazing story about Amazon that I didn't know, that they were in the late 90s on their way to becoming an incredibly top-heavy bureaucracy around innovation. And Bezos and his team eventually realized it was not working. It was turning Amazon into this kind of sclerotic mess. And they said, okay, we're, we're, we're going to pivot 180 degrees and the devolved authority way, 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 way down. There's a great quote from an engineer who used to work at Amazon. He described this pivot. And he said, you have to understand Jeff Bezos makes an ordinary control freak look like a stoned hippie. This guy <laughs> wants control, but he realized that his desire for control was holding back the company. And the only thing he wants more than control is success for Amazon. So he tried, he got himself and he got the hierarchy out of that business 
but he did put in an alignment process so that hopefully everybody in Amazon knows why what they're doing and how what they're doing fits in with the goals of the company. Yeah. And uh, a kissing cousin of that is the phrase that emerged from Amazon, which is the disagree and commit. Yeah. So you, you can actually, you if the objective is on the board, you can think that you're chasing the wrong objective, yeah. but you do not have the luxury of existing with that disagreement. You have to put down your you know, fighting for the other point of view or whatever and align around this thing. And essentially Amen. it's, yeah. And it's essentially, you know, you've got a, a values based organization that says, this is, these are the highest values. This, these are our objectives. And, um, I find, you know, when leading small, small teams as well, that the idea of aligning on values, even if it's, for this temporary mission. And you can re reimagine the next chapter after that where someone else who sort of didn't see the bigger picture, hopefully the team carries them there. You get to the top of the hill and you say, okay, cool, I get this. And the person who has maybe didn't, wasn't on board with the last thing, but they, they, they did get on board because of their commitment to the overall vision. Right. Then they have a chance to okay, cool. I really see this. And maybe, you know, someone else who doesn't see it has the opportunity to say, okay, cool. I saw our last move. I didn't see this move, but I believe in yeah. our vision, the people around us. And this is where, you know, it distills back to the values that are shared across an organization or that you point out, I think in your, your book, you call them norms, right? This yeah. is where it goes back to, are you immersed in a culture where you when you look to your left and your right, you like what you see. When you're working on something that is um, that you know you have passionate about and care for, and you know the four norms that you point out in in the book, right? Are like those to me are things that are missing from most organizations or most even an individual life. This sort of like what is your why? You've heard Simon Sinek talk about yeah. it so much, yep. and so uh, sort of the the catch all here is. Help, help me think or help our listeners think about how do you come up with these values? Like if being geeky is the framework that you're talking about, how did you distill? Like what are the attributes that the people that I like also like? And what are the, you know, how, how are these common threads? So what, what process did you go to to understand like who are my people and what do they believe? <laughs> I just, I got lucky, as I said, in my career, because I, I like thinking about businesses and organizations and I got to do it for a living. And I've also been fascinated by technology. So from the start of my career at business schools, first at Harvard and then at MIT, I, I would go out to Silicon Valley, I'd go talk to people who produce technology for a living, but then I'd also go talk to the rest of the economy. So I grew up with one leg in I hate these phrases, in the old economy and the other one in the new economy. And I'd go around and spend a lot of time inside companies just looking at what they were doing and how they were doing it. And my pattern matching abilities kept telling me that these two were not the same. Like these, these just didn't operate according to the same principles. They were very different organizations. They, were, they, were, they had a different ethos going on. And I, I kept on trying to crystallize what those differences were. And over the course of the 21st century, those differences have become bigger and bigger and bigger. And I, I kept on trying to say, like, okay, what are they? Don't just walk around with this vague sense. What are they? And in the reading that I did, I came across two things that I found super, super helpful. One was a guy named Chris Argyris, who I think is the all-time most underappreciated scholar of organizations. He wow. was a very senior professor at Harvard when I was just starting out there, and I got lucky enough to talk with him a bunch of times. And Argyris kept on talking about how hard it is to change organizations, how sticky they are, and how they get, they get so disheartening because the, the stickiness, the problems feel in, inescapable, and there are these undiscussable topics, and you can't even talk about the fact that there are undiscussable topics. And I, I would read his work, and I go, man, this guy nailed the problem. <laughs> And our, I'm going to simplify down his, his wonderful body of work. He said it comes from, from a starting point of defensiveness. If my job is to win all the time and never show weakness and never lose and be in control and take responsibility, those all kind of sound like good ideas, according to the playbook that I first 
learn from in business schools. That's not like those sound like chapters in a Jack Welch autobiography, right? And Arjuna yeah. said, "No, these are recipes for misery long term." And I thought, "Wait a minute, this this guy, this is interesting." The other thing that I came across more recently was a body of research from this discipline called cultural evolution which asks the question why are we the only species on the planet that launches spaceships nothing else is close the chimps are not to do it why are we so weird and different and the answer has to do with things that we've talked about it has to do with our incredibly rapid rate of learning and our learning ability under the right circumstances and it has to do with the fact that we cooperate intensely with other members of our species including people who were not related to that is unknown elsewhere on the planet and so when i became aware and started to read up on cultural evolution and a, a good friend of mine is a guy named Erez Yoeli who co-wrote a wonderful book called Hidden Games and he it was kind of my personal guru for thinking in these ways i'm like wait a minute this lets us reframe the job of a leader the job of a leader is to make cultural evolution as rapid as possible inside their organization in the desired direction that is a super geeky, super nerdy ground rule, but I, I, I found that I got a lot of mileage out of it. And these norms of science, ownership, speed, and openness, and these other things that we've been talking about, for me, these all feed into this ground rule of how do I make culture, the cultural evolution of my organization? And that means productivity growth. It means innovation. It means agility. It means ability to execute. How do I make my cultural evolution as fast as possible in the direction that I want? If you orient yourself around that question, I, I think that gets you a long way. Mm. Beautifully said. Okay. So I want to enter what I think is the final chapter of our conversation. And it's <laughs> it, it, you just hinted at some of the ingredients that I want to sort of mm -hmm. lay on the table. And I'm hoping to set them on the table and then you chop them up. And okay. the, the foundation is speed. And specifically, I want to think about that. I want to ask you to think about it in real time, trot it out for us. Like I would, I would say that the biggest problem in, and I'd say any organization and sometimes specifically small, even solopreneur organizations mm. are, yes. is par paralysis. <laughs> yeah. And, and what I've found, you know, in my experience as a leader and as a solopreneur, you know, working in the basement with, with no windows trying to get your thing off the ground is that paralysis is this, um, it is such a toxic, uh, trait where I don't know if trait is the right hmm. attribute of the, 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 the work mindset. And when you I think start realizing that, wait a minute, I, if you actually even make the wrong decision and then you run with it, you actually learn. So this idea of uh, of the the phrase that I coined in a in a book that uh, I wrote called Creative Calling was action over intellect. There's this <laughs> desire to well, over hold on. You're talking to a career. You're talking to a career <laughs> academic. You know, in my world, in, there's no there's no higher aspiration than a big IQ. <laughs> I'm I'm violently agreeing with you. By the yeah, way, yeah. So, but but talk talk to us yeah. about why speed matters in sort of the success of getting the best idea forward, whether you're a solopreneur, an entrepreneur, a small team, you know, leader, whatever, yeah. it seems that there is this, that speed matters. And I was hoping you can share with us why. It, the speed chapter in the book was probably my favorite chapter to write because I think the ideas in it, the ideas that I was able to, to unearth, are, they, they just help me understand your phenomenon so deeply. And there are all these crazy examples out there. You mentioned paralysis as this scary trap or a default for a lot of teams. And I think that's absolutely right. I can think of at least two really deep-seated reasons why that paralysis kicks in. Number one is defensiveness, right? Number one is... I don't want to try something that might not work because then I get the reputation as somebody who fails at things. And in a defensive organization, that reputation hangs around your neck. So it's easier to not stick your neck out, to not take risks, to try to do one more analysis to make sure that we're doing the right thing. The other thing, which is very different than this defensiveness, is something we talked about before. It's overconfidence. I know that my idea is the right idea. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna sketch it out. I'm gonna kind of, I'm gonna whiteboard it. I'm gonna think about it a lot because I know that I'm such a good thinker that if I just think about it enough, I'm gonna get it right. That is 
wrong. That is wrong. I talk in the book about the marshmallow challenge, which has become my all-time favorite exercise to run in class. Some of your listeners are probably thinking of the marshmallow challenge where they put a marshmallow in front of a little kid and waited to see if the kid could wait, I forget, five or 10 minutes before eating it. That's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> this is a challenge that uh, a, um, a guy named... Um, his last name was Skillman. I, I'm, uh, I forget his first name. He was working at IDO in the earlier years of the 21st century. And he came up with this brilliantly simple group exercise where, let's say there's a team of six people. They get a meter of uncooked spaghetti, a meter of string, a meter of tape, and a marshmallow. And they have 18 minutes. And the job is to build the tallest possible freestanding tower from a base can't hang it from the ceiling. It's got to be freestanding. Uh, it has to be stationary for three minutes before it counts. And the marshmallow has to be on top. And it's an awesome exercise to run because the thing when you're an instructor that you really want is to know what's going to happen. Surprises are not what you want. When I run the marshmallow challenge, I know what's going to happen. Most of the groups are going to sit around and they're going to very confidently sketch out what their tower is going to look like in all of its finished glory. And they're going to, they, they, they draw sketches and they hold things up to each other. And I'm watching the clock tick. Then they start building a, like a triangular base or a square base. And then they put some tape on and I'm watching the clock tick. And somewhere around minute, I don't know, 12 to 15, they've got some kind of tower. And I can, I can tell how solid it is. And they're like, yeah, I'm feeling good about this. And then reality happens because they put the marshmallow on top of the tower and the whole thing goes and it falls over. And they realize their idea was a bad idea, and they've now got two minutes and 30 seconds to come up with a better one. They are just guilty of the planning fallacy. So for those two reasons, for, for the, the risk of failing and the, the overconfidence that we're not about to fail, those things combine, and we just overanalyze, we overplan, and we paralyze ourselves. What the geeks are adamant about, maybe this is, this is one of the most closely held values and one of the deepest norms, is nope, we're not going to do that. We're not going to plan. We're going to build. We're going to iterate. We're going to try something. We're going to learn. We're going to learn from reality. We're going to learn from a customer. As we look around, we're going to learn from other people and get better at this. And the preference for iteration and experimentation over planning is pronounced in the geeks. I talked to Will Marshall, who's the CEO of Planet. They build these cube satellites that scan the earth every day. And Will says they've got about a thousand fold cost advantage over legacy imagery providers. And he started his career at NASA. He said, I learned a ton at NASA. And you have to do a lot of planning before you launch a satellite. You can't, you can't just wing it. But Will said, I became convinced that NASA was too planning heavy, too risk averse, didn't realize that components are cheap now and nobody's going to die, so you can just try stuff. And after he and his colleagues, literally, I think, I think literally, they launched a smartphone into space and told it to take pictures and got the packets back down on earth and took the first picture from space ever with a smartphone that convinced them that there was another way forward. And they left NASA and they started Planet and they have this inherently iteration heavy, speedy approach to learning and doing things. And just think how pervasive it is. Think how many uh, of the starships SpaceX has had crash when they take off from the launch pad. No crew, nobody died from these. They're like, oh, that rocket blew up. That's not a failure, that's a learning experience. And it works because keep in mind, not with the not with Starship, but with their uh, with, with their Falcon ro rocket, I believe NASA is the only American organization. <clears throat> this includes NASA. This includes Boeing. This includes a lot of other people. SpaceX is the only American organization that has received permission to ferry astronauts up to the ISS. That's the only one in America. NASA literally has no vehicle that can do that anymore. So the notion that you can't take this iteration heavy approach in environments where, where risk is super high or lives are at stake, it's, it's just not true. And so all this is just a long-winded way for me to violently agree with you that the tendency is to plan. That is a tendency that should be encouraged up to the minimum viable plan level. And then the job is to iterate, build, learn, do it again, probably more quickly than you're, prob than you're comfortable with right now. Yeah. And that last characteristic is, I believe, the most telling when you're in in the paint, right? If you're totally comfortable, okay, it's like, okay, we can now run the experiment. You've planned too much. Like that's actually the tell, right? <laughs> yeah. It's always yeah. like, oh man, 
this, this is, is why blow I, up. Yeah. Yeah. This is why I like to orient, especially, you know, creators and entrepreneurs who are nervous to like orient around the concept of tiny experiments yeah. Yeah. rather than a product that you're making or sh like something that, you know, is destined for greatness. Like think about it as a tiny experiment and yeah. that, you know, helps lower this bar and the lowering of that bar is the thing that in, it's inversely proportional to speed, right? It's, if you're yeah. able to be fast, that's actually, what is it? Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. You end up you know, <laughs> failing a lot gracefully. And yeah. if you can embed that in your culture or as a solo creator into your mind. And you mentioned discomfort, evidence. right? There are aspects yeah. of the geek way that are uncomfortable. You, you, and we just hit on them. Iterating before you feel like you've done enough planning, it's uncomfortable. Arguing with people, having your ideas shot down, I can tell you from ample experience, it is uncomfortable. Openness is uncomfortable. You know what else is uncomfortable? Working in a stultifying bureaucracy why, where you don't know why you're doing exists. Uh, working in some kind of clock punchy job where you know nobody's listening to you and you're just kind of going through the motions for a paycheck. I think that's not, that's not just uncomfortable. I think that's excruciating and, I, yeah. and people don't want to live their, live their professional lives that way. So it's not that the geek way is effortless and fun for everybody at all times. Pointed conversations can be difficult. I had Chris Argyris when I was collaborating very, very kindly call me out for not holding up my end. I, I did not love that conversation, but I learned a lot from it. And it's better than this, this kind of, you know, stultifying sclerotic bureaucratic thing that we associate with big or with big legacy organizations. I think we can, uh, leave our conversation today knowing that we have helped some people who wouldn't maybe have other, otherwise identified as geeks, yeah. uh, to throw themselves in the geek ring. Uh, congratulations on your new book. It's called The Geek Way, The Radical Mindset That Derives Extraordinary Results. Andy, thanks for being a guest on the show. We really appreciate the work that you do. And, you know, we're good at helping support authors. So we, we know to go buy the book, but help, help us understand where else to stay in touch with you and your work. You know, you've mentioned a lot of big fancy places and words like Harvard and MIT and <laughs> Come on help, down. Help, help us track your, uh, yeah. how do we stay in touch with you and the work that you do? It's really fascinating. In, in addition to buying the book and thank you for that. The easiest thing is to just follow me on Twitter. I'm a McAfee, A M C A F like Frank E E on Twitter and my aspiration, you know, once, once I have ample free time and you know how easy that is for, for people like us, my aspiration is to spin up a sub stack and just start getting these ideas out there in best geek fashion. So stay tuned. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much again, the geek way from, uh, Andy and myself, uh, here in Seattle. I'm very, very excited to, uh, have had your ears attuned to what it is we're talking about here on the show today. Thank you very much for your attention. And until next time, from Andy and myself, we both bid you a great day, a creative day, and uh, stay tuned for more. All right. Hey, before you go, thanks so much for listening. And if you got value from this show, chances are your community will too, right? In the particular lies the universal. Please share this link to the show with a friend or mention the show on social. That is a huge benefit for us in hopefully in exchange for providing value to you. I want you to know that I really appreciate your time, the attention, anything that you give to the show and the questions that you ask our guests either on social media or through my text community. All of that is pure gold. This community, like any community, is a testament to that old phrase, a rising tide floats all boats. And by elevating one another, by sharing and resharing this show, the tidbits that you learn and the experiences you take away, all of that has a collective, massive positive impact on the world. So just a quick thank you. I appreciate all the effort you put into sharing this show. All right, that's a wrap. Let's put today's episode into practice and get back to growing together.